Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Our current series is Everyday Saints, a study of the book of Ephesians, looking into what we have and who we are in Jesus. One of the things that we did in preparation for this new series is that we put together a playlist, all of which tied into uh, the book of Ephesians here. So if you want about an hour and a half worth of really, really good worship music, uh, start your day with it, read your Bible to it, whatever, go to our Facebook page or to our website and connect, click, or, uh, click on the blog, and there's a Spotify playlist with, I think, like 25 songs on it. So you will have to have a Spotify account, but it's free and it's easy, and if you don't know what Spotify is, just nab one of the hipster-looking youngsters running around here, and they'll let you know, all right? <clears throat> so we uh, are going to start a new series today that I'm really, really excited about. I'll tell you why in a minute here, but before we get into it too much, I'm going to read through our text today. I'm going to have you stand with me. We're going to put the, the scripture up uh, <clears throat> on the screen behind me, and, and the reason that we stand isn't... isn't really out of tradition. Uh, we're a pretty non-traditional church. It's just out of reverence and respect that God's about to speak. So we're going to read through God's word. We're going to pray and ask that his Holy Spirit would, uh, would do whatever he wants to do. And then we will get into it. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, In Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of the glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God, we thank you for this book that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city um, about 2,000 years ago. And we thank you that it's as relevant today as it was then. And we thank you, God, for just the, the blessing and the riches that are found in this book. And God, my, my hope over the next 15 weeks is that you would help us to love you more when we see how much you love us. Help us to understand who we are. Help us to understand what you've given us, what you're doing in us and through us, God, and around us. And God, I, 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 I want us to be fully grounded in the knowledge of your grace and of your love and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would do that work. I certainly cannot. I pray, God, that every single person in here, from whatever background they come, from whatever week they've had, 
would have an experience with you today and that they would acknowledge that it's from you and that they would follow you, obey you, love you, humble themselves before you, submit themselves to you because of your grace to them. We love you today, God, and we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So God saved me when I was 16 years old, October 19th, 1994. 2014 will be 20 years since God saved me. And when I got saved, I came to faith in a large Baptist church. And that's some of you are like, oh, that connected some dots for me. Fair enough. Um, I got saved in a large Baptist church. Uh, I was raised, uh, not really raised, but had recently become a part of a single parent home was not really interested in Jesus, was not pursuing Jesus, was not, was not considering Jesus. I wasn't a seeker. Uh, I was an angry teenager who uh, had, had recently found out that he wasn't going to be having a relationship with his dad. I wasn't, I wasn't into it, and God pursued me, and God saved me, and God did for me what I was not interested in doing for myself at 16 years old. I don't have some crazy story, and, and I'm completely good with that. It, it bothers me when people say that God's saving them. They have a boring version of that. There is no boring version of the grace of God. Uh, there's there's uh, collateral damage around the grace of God, but there is no boring around the grace of God. And shortly after uh, God saved me, by his grace, he put two men in my life. And this is something, I'm, this is a rabbit trail, but this is something that in 2014, I really hope that God begins to to uh, develop in this church. We've got single moms with teenage boys and girls in this church, and we need, when God is at work in their life, we need men and women to come alongside and love them and teach them and mentor them like I had in my life. And I'll, I'll be candid with you, if these two men would not have done that, um, whatever is good in me would probably not be. And so we need gospel coaches and mentors and, and surrogate moms and dads, but that's another day. Uh, so the two men that came into my life, one was named Frank Pardue, he was the teaching pastor at the church, and one was named Dick Bradley, and he was a very well-off businessman. He sold um, medical equipment, and I actually went to work for him uh, out of high school. But these were two men that, in the absence of uh, a really strong relationship with my dad, became uh, father figures in my life. In fact, Dick married Ash and I, and uh, did our premarital counseling and all that stuff. So when I say hey, if, you're gonna, if we're going to marry you, we're going to do premarital counseling. I've, I've been there, done that. I'm not asking you to do anything that I didn't do. It was a really beneficial thing for us. But both of those men had a habit. <clears throat> and that habit was that they every single day read the exact same thing. And that was that they took the calendar and they lined it up with 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. And they chose the day. So today is the fifth. They read Proverbs chapter five. And tomorrow they would do Proverbs chapter six and seven and eight and all the way through. And, um, and they really imparted that to me. And I was, at 16 years old, really fascinated with wisdom and leadership and just being a good man. And so it very quickly became my favorite book in the Bible. Uh, and for lots of years, I did that. And, and really, most months, if you uh, track what I'm reading in the Bible, Proverbs will some, be somewhere in there. Um, about six or seven years ago, I was doing that. I was, I was learning wisdom and hard work and all those kind of things. I had become a pastor at a church in Cincinnati, and I really kind of hit my religious wall. And here's what I mean by that. Um, when I came to faith, I was under the idea that by God's grace, he saved me, but that when it came to 
me doing stuff to make him happy or accept me or, or enjoy me. That was up to me. Does that make sense to you? And so I had this idea, we talked about it last week, that, that by the grace of God, he justifies me, but that the sanctification thing, the transformation thing, that was up to my hard work and effort. And, uh, and that becomes really problematic when you become a pastor because your work is supposed to be spiritual. And when your work is going well, it means that God's happy with you. And when your work is struggling, it means that you must have done something that you shouldn't have done. And, and all of my legalism and all of my moralism started to kind of come to the surface. And, and, uh, and I really, really, really started to struggle. And my body started to freak out on me a little bit. I'd go into the doctor and the doc would say, what's going on with you? You're reasonably healthy, but you have this or this or this. Um, and what it was is that I was, I was on the religious treadmill running as fast as I could in the name of Pastor Tim. Um, but I could not wrap my head around uh, how God felt about me or if he liked me or if he enjoyed me. And so the harder I tried, the less accepted I felt. And so I went to this conference in Orlando, which candidly I kind of wish I was at right now uh, since it's going to be minus 87 or something like that tonight. Um, and, and, I, and I went there in the idea that I was going to get more good things to do so things could go well so that God would be good with me. And I went and I listened to guy after guy after guy who said what he did and said how much money he raised and what, he, what programs he put in place. And I just, I, it just started to push me down further and further and further. And then this guy stands up and he was a Presbyterian guy, an older guy. And everybody else is like all decked out in the latest, greatest. And this guy walks up and he's got an eagle's nest. He's like six foot five. He's wearing a blazer with the leather pads straight up. Like black, black slacks. He gets this stool. He sits down. This is what he says. Everybody else is like, you know, rocking the pyrotechnics and rhyming stuff and, you know, all this deal. And this guy sits down. He opens up his Bible, which oddly enough at a pastor's conference, he was the first one who had done that. And he says this. I would like to talk today in complete and utter monotone. I would like to talk today about the 16 points of biblical and historical revival. <laughs> All right. Hey, you know that doesn't rhyme, right? <laughs> and where's the pyrotechnics? And, and he, he, uh, he went through uh, 16 points in 40 minutes and, and read my mail, talking about historical revival. And so what I did is I... I uh, I started to listen to everything I could from this guy, and he, every time he would be talking about this thing, um, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and I was like, right, got that, prayed that when I was 16 years old, done, been there, good to go, what about transformation? And he started to talk about how the God who by his grace saves me will also sanctify me and will also preserve me until he comes to get me. And that was through Bible school, through Lots of years in church through, candidly, lots of years of teaching the Bible. The simplest thing, to the extent that I had not thought about it, <laughs> I, it was news to me. And I started to get into God's word, and I started to listen to other guys who were talking about this gospel thing. And God started to peel off the weariness of moralism and legalism from me. And God started to, uh, to bring me to a place of knowing how he felt about me. The book of Ephesians, if it does anything, it answers the question, how does God really feel about me? 
And here's the thing that I want you to know about this. Um, A lot of you have a feeling about how God feels about you. And that feeling is contingent upon your behavior, your discipline, or your latest experience. And although I'm thankful for the times that you feel like God loves you, and even though there's benefit to feeling like God loves you, my prayer for you through the book of Ephesians isn't that you would feel like God loves, likes, and enjoys you. It's that you would know that God loves you, likes you, and enjoys you. And that you would know what he did to prove that to you, and that you would know what he says. And so for a lot of years, the book of Proverbs was my favorite book in the Bible until about seven years ago, and then Ephesians became my favorite book in the Bible because I know how God feels about me. And when I need to be reminded, Ephesians reminds me. When I need to be reminded, Ephesians lets me know who I am because of who God is, and it reminds me of what I know, and it centers me not on my effort, not on my discipline, not on my latest experience, not on emotion. It centers me on Jesus, and it centers me on the gospel, and it centers me on what he did, not on what I need to do to make him happy so he'll keep doing for me. So the book of Ephesians, just to give you a little bit of background on this, answering this question of how does God really feel about me was written by a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul, Apostle being not his first name, the office that he held, Uh, a dude by the name of Saul who God saved in the book of Acts and changed his name to Paul. And Paul writes this book from prison. He's in a Roman prison and he writes three books of the Bible from it. We know that while he's in prison, he meets a guy by the name of Onesimus, who's a runaway servant or slave Who's a, and, and his master is, is a friend of Paul's, uh, a guy by the name of Philemon. And so Paul, being in prison, meeting this criminal, writes a letter asking his friend Philemon to forgive Onesimus on behalf of Paul. And there's a book in the Bible that's known as Philemon. The second book that he wrote was to a group of people in an area known as Colossae. And there was a church that he had planted in this area, this region known as Colossae, and he writes a letter to them from prison, um, and that letter is also in our Bible. It's the book of Colossians. And then the third letter that he writes is this letter that was probably to a region, probably to a region known as Asia Minor, and the Roman capital of the Asia Minor province was a city by the name of Ephesus. And there's a church that had been planted in Ephesus by a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And then a dude by the name of Apollos had come in and kind of led and taught and preached to that church. And it was this young, fledgling church that Paul had gone to, and he had become really their pastor for about three years. And he loves this church, and he actually sent one of his main uh, disciples, a guy by the name of Timothy, to become the first pastor, uh, official pastor in Ephesus, and he wrote a couple letters to his boy Timothy about the church in Ephesus, and the title of those is First and Second Timothy. And so this letter that Paul writes to this church at Ephesus is what we know as the book of Ephesians. And so probably what happens is when Onesimus gets out of prison, Paul uh, compels him to take these letters or to delegate these letters Onesimus takes the letter to Philemon, probably gives the letter to 
the Colossians to somebody else, and then somebody takes this letter to Asia Minor, and probably in three other stops, the first one they stops at is the capital city, and that's Ephesus. And it's this letter to the Ephesians, introducing them to themselves. Introducing them to themselves. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But here's essentially what's going on. This is a group of people who are probably reasonably new to the faith. This is a group of people who is a young church, and the folks who uh, aren't young uh, are, are not that many. In fact, in this way, it's, it's pretty similar to Damascus Road. Now, I know that every preacher has to figure out a way to act like all the bo- books in the Bible are just like what's going on here. That's not really what's happening here, but this is, a, this is a young church with a bunch of young believers, and Paul's writing to center them on the person and work of Jesus. We know about Ephesus that once it was planted, the city did not respond well to its planting. And that when Paul and Apollos started to preach the gospel there, the city actually rioted. The city itself rioted. And there was all these people who tried to stomp out what God was doing in Ephesus. And so you have a church of young believers who's being at some level persecuted. And when you're being persecuted, you tend to get a little waved, wave, uh, you know, insecure in who you are and who God is and what he thinks about you. And so Paul is writing to these people to ground them in who they are and to ground them in who God is based on what Jesus has done in comparison to the gods that they used to serve. And here's what you need to understand about that. A lot of the folks who are new believers in Ephesus were people who had been pagans before. In other words, they served other gods, they loved other gods, and those other gods were not kind were not loving, did not enjoy them, they demanded of them. They demanded of them. And so Paul is writing and saying, this new savior, this new God that you have is not like your old gods. He's kind and he's good and he's gracious and he's loving and he's benevolent. He's not angry and mean and and demanding like the gods that he used to have. And so in that way, this book is really relevant for us because we've got a lot of young believers in this church. And we live in a city that it's not a a key into things to be a Christian. It's actually a little bit of something that you got to overcome. And we have a lot of people in this church who used to serve other gods who were not kind to them, who did not love them, who did not care of them, but always said more, 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 more. And that God could be money or work or relationships or just religion itself. And so this is a very relevant book, a very timely book for where we are, and that's why we're starting it uh, to begin 2014. So let's get into this a little bit further. Paul introduces himself as an apostle by the will of God, and then he gives the first description of the people in Ephesus to the people of Ephesus. And let me show you something that's interesting about this. Paul introduces these people to themselves by something that someone else did. Now, I want you to think about this. You go to a party, you went to a New Year's party, and you meet somebody for the very first time. And how do you introduce yourself? Hey, man, how you doing? I'm Tim. And a dude says to you, so what do you do? do do?" And when he asks what I do, I tell him where I work. And as the conversation goes on, I tell him other things that I do. I tell him where I went to school. I tell him, I tell him uh, you know, things that I've, I've done or places that I've been or things I've been involved in, generally things that went well, not things that didn't go well, right? 
Or we go on Facebook, and what do we do? We talk about things that we've done. We talk about things that we're doing. We talk about accomplishments that we've had, or we post obnoxious articles, but that's a different story. Um, We like to introduce ourselves by things that we have done, because those things give us a sense of accomplishment and a a sense of, uh, of worth and of value and of validity. Paul introduces the church at Ephesus to themselves by something that someone else has done. He says, I'm going to introduce you to yourself by telling you what God has done for you. I'm going to introduce you to yourself by telling you what God has done for you. And that's the most foundational aspect of Christianity. It's the understanding that my identity is not stemming from who I am, what I've done, where I've been, what I've accomplished. In fact, when I rely on those things, it makes me not a Christian. You hear what I'm saying? When we rely on our value, our worth, our identity based on what we've done and what we've accomplished, that means you aren't a Christian. It means you're religious. And religion and Christianity are not the same thing. A Christian is somebody who says, my identity, my worth, my value, my, my, my essence is wrapped up in what Jesus has done for me. Not what I've done. And so when I introduce myself, as it were, I introduce myself by letting folks know what somebody else did on my behalf, not what I did to gain worth or value or make them think that I'm successful. A Christian is somebody who starts with, receives the idea of a work having been done for them. One of the books that we put on our website that you could check out is a book by the name of Sit, Walk, Stand, written by a Chinese dude named Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee, sounds like a superhero, right? Uh, Watchman Nee wrote a book from prison called Sit, Walk, Stand, based on the book of Ephesians. And he talks about that the first two chapters of Ephesians, your posture for them is sitting. Sitting, not working. Sitting, not doing. Sitting, not active. Sitting, receiving. Sitting, resting. Sitting, comfort. Why? Because a work has been done. And I sit and I receive and I get my identity from something that someone else has done, not relying on something that I have done. That's the basis of the Christian faith, and it's the point of the book of Ephesians. So Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the what? To the saints. To the saints. This is an interesting word, and saints is really a loaded term in our, in our context. I'm talking about the football team that won on a field goal last minute, last night. I'm talking about saints in the religious sense. Saints in the religious sense. And it's a loaded word, even though we don't use it very often, but we often put it in kind of juxtaposition to something else. We talk about saints and what? What's the opposite? Sinners. Saints and sinners. And I know very few people that if they were going to be introduced, they would introduce themselves as a saint. I know lots of people who would say, on the pendulum of sinners and saints, well, what can I say? <laughs> I'm definitely a sinner. I'm not trying to be a sinner. I'm not, I don't want to be a sinner, but every time I try, to, I try to do good stuff, bad stuff happens whenever I'm, you know, it just doesn't work out, and they don't even know that they're quoting the Bible when they say that. We don't consider ourselves saints. We consider ourselves sinners, and we view how God views us, and what he must feel about us, and what he must think about us, and what we need to do to change that through the lens, not of being saints, but of being sinners. Paul, however, 
when he introduces the church at Ephesus to themselves, calls them not sinners, he calls them saints. And in fact, he doesn't just call them saints once, he calls them saints nine times in the book. It's almost like there's this point that he wants them to understand, and there's this point that he wants them to know. A couple things about this word, saints. In the English language, around the 1100s, the word saints was somebody who had been canonized or beatified. Essentially, it means this. Saints was a, was a descriptive of somebody who was holy. It was a descriptive of somebody who was holy. And around the 1300s, it became a noun, and it wasn't a descriptive. It was an office, a state. It was something that you were, something that you had been, become, something that had been identified in you. And so just like you would describe yourself as a noun, a sinner, because you are not holy, around the 1300s, there were people walking around who were saints. They were holy, not in the active sense, but in the positional sense. Like, henceforth, these folks are holy. These folks are good. These folks are the ones that you should look up to. The word that Paul uses here is this idea of a saint being someone who God has separated and devoted from the world and to himself because of Jesus. So listen to me. Saint in the book of Ephesians is not, is not a noun based on something that describes who I am and what I've done. It's not when I look at Tim, he always does good stuff and so he's a saint. In fact, when you look at Tim, you would say, Tim's somewhere over in the sinner category. But a saint isn't somebody who has earned sainthood. A saint is somebody that God saved, that God separated from the world and to himself because of Jesus. It's somebody that, that was doing this and God turned them around and sent them this direction. It's not somebody who earned it. It's not somebody who described themselves based on some activity that they've done. It's somebody that says, when I was 16 years old, I wasn't interested and God saved me. And that makes me a saint. That makes me a saint. Sainthood is still earned though. I want you to think about this. Sainthood is still something that's earned. Paul is saying it's just something that's not earned by you, but is earned by Jesus. Now, you think about this idea of sainthood. A lot of times I hear people who, who describe how God views us is God loves us even though we sin. Have you heard that before? Or God loves me unconditionally. Or this is so jacked up. You did not see me put my gum under this music stand. <laughs> Inappropriate thing number one. <clears throat> um, I hear people say, being a saint or being a Christian is God loving me unconditionally or in spite of or even though. That's not what the gospel says. Hear what I'm saying. A saint isn't somebody who said, God loves me even though I sin. A saint is somebody who, because of Jesus, God views you as though you've never sinned. You see the difference? God doesn't look at you and say, Tim's a saint and he's a saint even though he's a knucklehead, even though he screws up. I'm going to love him in spite of his failures. 
I'm going to love him in spite of his sin. I'm going to love him unconditionally. I'm going to love him in spite of his brokenness. That's not the gospel. The gospel is when Jesus or God looks at me, he looks at me through Jesus, and he says, I look at Tim and I don't see him fail. I don't see him sin. I don't see him as broken. I see him as holy. I see him as perfect. I see him as complete. I see him as a saint. I see him as a saint. You see, we have a, a, a tradition in our culture that says that sainthood is something that, that's earned, but a Christian is somebody who says sainthood is something that's given. It's something that's given. And I want you to hear me very carefully because I, I'm concerned that we have cliched the gospel when we say things like, God loves me in my whatever. God dealt with your whatever, and he loves you in dealing with and because he's dealt with. And when you are in Jesus, God says you are holy and clean and perfect and acceptable to him. Not in spite of. There is no in spite of. Period. Done. Accomplished. And Paul is writing to the people at Ephesus and introducing them to themselves based on something that's been given to them. You're perfect. And so this gets at the heart and gets at the, at the foundation of religion that says there's still more to do. You see how that happens? That whole God loves me in spite of my leaves the door open for so I'm going to work on my Versus God saying, it's a done deal. It's accomplished. It's finished. You are positionally, permanently, eternally sainted. I'm going to introduce you to yourself based on who you not will be, not hope to be, not once you go through your New Year's resolutions and get them done, might be who you are who you are. Before God, I'm a saint. I'm, I'm Mother Teresa. Better. Because Mother Teresa messed up, didn't she? I'm completely perfect. Nothing to be done. Nothing to be accomplished. Nothing to be earned. Not God in spite of. Not hope to. Not work hard. Not New Year's resolution. Complete saint. Tim. Me. That's what the gospel is. It's what the gospel provides. This is the reason then that we entitled this series Everyday Saints. Because over the next 15 weeks, you're going to be brought face to face with who God says that you are permanently, every day. And you're going to be tempted to want to go back to that self-analysis that says, I'm not good enough, there's more to be done, I'm not disciplined, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not giving enough, serving enough, growing enough, whatever. And we want you to every day know who you are in Jesus. Every day know what God has done for you. Every day know what God has accomplished in you. And we're not even really into the crux of the letter here. Chapter th- or verse three, Paul gives us our second identifier. First, you are a saint. Second, you are blessed. 
Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. From verse 3 to verse 14, here's what Paul essentially does. He takes a deep breath and he does an enormous run-on sentence. If you look at your Bible or you look at the screen, from verse 3 to verse 14 in the Greek, it's one sentence. And so Paul, essentially, in trying to introduce the Ephesians to themselves based on what God has done, does, you are, he just goes on and on and on. And the entire text is a rant of the grace of God, is a rant of the blessing of God, is a rant of who you are, is, a, is, a, is an argument, a, deba- a, a, a debate, a, a yelling, a screaming. He, you got to picture him in his jail cell, stomping as he writes, pacing around, just frothing at the mouth. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is what God has done for you. You are a saint. And I want you to think about the oddity of this. Notice what I just said, pacing around in his jail cell. He writes this rant of praise to everything that God has done from prison. He's not hanging out on the beach. He's not looking around saying, God's been so good to me. Look at my car, look at my house. He's in jail, which should let you know something about the ability that we have to believe who God says that we are regardless of circumstance. If Paul can believe this, not only about himself, but about the church at Ephesus while he's in a Roman prison, it might be possible that God wants me to believe it every day, in every way, in every circumstance. So here we go. Number one, you're a saint. Number two, you are blessed. And he says this, you are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So let me just clarify a couple things about this. He says that you are blessed with quantitatively what? Every spiritual blessing. I want you to think about it like this. Let's say that God has <clears throat> like a, one of those biggie drinks that you get at the, at the, grocery, or, uh, the gas station. You know what I'm talking about? Like the 86 ounce for 99 cents. You with me? All right. So let's say that that is, is quantitatively the full capacity of what God can give you to bless you. You with me? That God has this vat of blessing that he, can, that he can provide you, and that from our perspective, he kind of incrementally pours out over time. And if you come from a really religious background, you say, when you do good things, he kind of, whoop! And then when you do bad things, he kind of scrapes it off and puts it back in the cup. Are you with me? Here's what God says. Paul says of God that you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. That God empties his blessing capacity on those who are in Christ. Now, this is one of those things, this is why I say to you, I'm less concerned with how you feel and I'm more concerned with how, what you know. Because how many of us feel like God pours out every blessing on us? And for those of us who say, I do not feel that way, it might be A, that we don't know what God knows, or B, that we're looking for a different kind of blessing that he says he's already given us. 
Paul says, you are a saint. Not one day, not hope to, today, you are a saint in Christ. You are blessed. You have received every blessing that God is capable of giving you. You got it. Number two, the guarantee and the basis of our blessing is what? Whether or not we are in Christ. Do you realize that God says that the blessing, the the comprehensive, overwhelming, eternal, bucket poured out blessing that he has to give you is a person? That that person is Jesus. You see, a lot of times the reason that we don't feel blessed is because we think that blessing is some kind of tangible, temporal thing. Like God's blessing me if he pays my bills. God's blessing me if I get a new car. God's blessing me if I get a raise. God's blessing me if I don't fight with my wife. God's blessing me if my kids don't embarrass me at the restaurant. That's not the blessing that God's talking about. God says the blessing that I have to give you is the body, blood, work, and life of my son who redeems and saves you. And God's assumption is that we'll understand that to such an extent that we'll say things like, take everything else from me, but leave me Jesus and I'll be fine. You see, this is the reason that we start to feel like we aren't blessed because we don't understand the blessing that we've already been given. You read down through the letters that Paul says, and he's like, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beat, I've been stole from, I've been homeless, I've been hungry, I've been broke, but I got Jesus, I'm good. You're like, huh? That's what he's talking about here. That every blessing that God has to give you, he has poured out in the person and work of Jesus, and the guarantee of that blessing is Jesus, and the basis of that blessing is Jesus. If you're sitting in here today, and you say, I want the blessing that God has for me, then the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it is ready, waiting, and available for you. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And anything that we try to add on to that diminishes our understanding of the blessing that he is. Listen, enough already with this God's gonna make you happy, wealthy, whatever nonsense. If God sees fit to give you a Lamborghini, fine. But we should understand the gospel to be that the blessing is Jesus, not anything that God sees fit to provide us. And we should stop giving the people the impression that there's anything more valuable than that. We should stop giving people the impression, come to Jesus and he'll deal with your problems and he'll make you happy and he'll give you money and he'll give you a hot wife. That is not in the Bible. The gospel is come to Jesus and he'll give you himself. And it will be the greatest, most eternal, most all-encompassing, most fulfilling, most comprehensive blessing that you could ever have. It's God dumping the cup of blessing on your life to give you Jesus. And we should stop acting like, what else? Like a little kid on Christmas Day. Anything else? No, nothing else. Jesus. There's Jesus. So in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then he's going to give us three blessings. Number one is the blessing of predestination. Hello. You're like, right, know all about that. Predestination is one of those words in church world that people get all worked up about. People get all worked up about predestination and foreknowledge and this and this and this. We're not going to talk about any of those things today. We're going to talk about what Paul talks about here, this blessing of having been predestined 
He gives us three descriptives of this. This is who you are in Christ. Number one, it's the, the blessing of being chosen. The blessing of being chosen. Let me, let me say it to you this way. Have you ever been rejected? Have you ever gone in for a job and they're like, uh, no. Have you ever asked her out and she was like, no, 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 no. Have you ever extended yourself in friendship and the person wasn't interested? Have you, ever, have, you ha- have you ever been playing kickball and got kicked last? I don't know, right? The being passed over, the, the another better option, the you're not good enough, the I want something or someone else. Have you ever had that happen to you? I have lots and lots of times. Here's the blessing of predestination that God chose you. God chose you with any option that he wanted, right? God chose me. God wanted me. God desired me. God pursued me. God saved me. He predestined me. And here's what it says, that he chose me before the foundation of the world. Before anybody else knew about me and knew whether or not I would earn their favor or earn their love or earn their enjoyment, God said, I want him. And God said he wants you. Predestination is the idea of being chosen by God, not being rejected by God, not coming to God and saying, here's everything that I have, and him saying, not good enough. The gospel is that I come to God and I say, I've got nothing, and he says, welcome in. In fact, Christianity is that when I come to God and I say, here's all the stuff I have to offer you, that's antithetical to the gospel, that you have to come to God and say, God, I have nothing to give you. Do you still want me? And he chooses to say yes. Now, on top of this, isn't just the idea of being chosen, it's the idea of being adopted. Adoption is an activity that's very close to the heart of the gospel. And you hear stories all the time of people going to other countries and going into an orphanage and having to go through the very tedious, I'm sure very painful, very awkward activity of choosing a child. The gospel is that God goes into a room of deserted, rejected children and says, I'll take all of them. And takes them home and isn't immediately overwhelmed and regretting his decision. But that he takes them home, that he loves them perfectly, that he changes their life, that he makes them his sons and daughter, that he gives them a new family and a new future because he chose them. He chose you. Thirdly, it's to be, listen to this phrase, the beloved I don't want you to necessarily feel like God loves you. I want you to know that you are God's beloved. You hear this phrase a lot of times, and it's, it's like, in the midst of all of these things that I love, the, my beloved is the thing that I love the most. It's, it's, I love all of these, but then there's this one thing. Here's what the gospel is. It's that in the midst of all these things, you're that one thing. Well, how can I be that one thing and they be that one thing? We're talking about the the vastness of the love of God at this point. I am the beloved in Christ. I am God's favorite. You say, wait a minute. 
I thought I was God's favorite. You are too. We can't comprehend this, can we? We can't wrap our heads around the idea of being God's favorite in Christ. Being chosen, being adopted, being predestined. The blessing of knowing God wanted me. God loves me. God enjoys me. God doesn't regret picking me. I'm God's favorite. What are you going to do to me when I know that I'm God's favorite? You're going to talk bad about me? Okay. You're going to reject me? Okay. You're going you're to say I'm not good enough, say I don't accomplish, say I haven't earned? All right. All true. I'm still God's favorite. There's nothing that you can say to a Christian that should be capable of offending them if they know who they are. They know who they are. The blessing of being in Christ, the blessing of having Jesus, the blessing of being chosen, of being adopted, of being the beloved. Number two, the blessing of redemption. The blessing of redemption. Here's what redemption means. The blessing of being forgiven. Here's the idea of this word redemption. It's actually a, it's actually a pretty harsh word. You guys have seen movies where people are lined up as slaves on blocks and people come in and they choose to buy one of them out of slavery or into another kind of slavery. The word redemption is not, it's to, it's to line up all of us who are slaves to sin and to make a payment to buy us out of slavery. Not to buy us to be his slave, right? To buy us to freedom. That's what redemption is. It's this exchange your brokenness, your slavery, your indebtedness, your bondage for his love, his freedom, his adoption, predestination. Redemption, Paul says, isn't just the initial purchase. It's that God buys us back, exchanges his blood for my sin, and that in the buying back, he doesn't only buy us out, but he forgives us of our sin. You see, I can... I can buy something, I could buy someone out of slavery, right? But that's different than me forgiving them, isn't it? There's this emotional exchange that, that happens. There's this, there's this initial thing that happens, but forgiveness is something that has to be done each and every day. I don't know if you've ever had an argument with your wife. I haven't, but I've read a couple books about arguing. And, um, and here's what I know. When, when I fail my wife, she, she has to initially redeem me out of my sin relationally, doesn't she? But then throughout the day and into the next day, she has to choose to continue to forgive me. She can say, yes, we're good. Redeem me out of that state of failure. But then the next time that I do it, she has to choose again to forgive me. Choose again to offer forgiveness. Choose again to let me be in the state of having been redeemed. Does that make sense? The gospel is that on the cross, Jesus forgives. On the cross, God poured out his wrath so that each and every day when I wake up, I live in a state of permanent forgiveness. I live and you live in a state of permanent forgiveness. Paul goes on, he says that God has lavished his grace upon us. For some reason, I have this picture of painting when I think of lavishing. 
that God dips into his bucket of grace and like sloppily slaps <laughs> grace all over me. Just <laughs> and it's a mess and it's flying everywhere and it's getting in my eyes. Forgiveness that is connected to grace is, listen, that God redeemed me when I didn't know I needed to be, got to, to be bought and forgave me when I wasn't asking for forgiveness. I was going through life even at 16, thinking I'm good, I'm free, I, I, I can make my own decisions, I can be my own man, and only when God redeemed me did I realize in how much bondage I had been. And when God redeemed me, I told you, I wasn't looking to be redeemed. I didn't want God. I wasn't pursuing God. I wasn't interested in being saved and being a Christian. And that's why God showed me grace, because I didn't think that I needed it. I didn't think that I needed grace. And while I was going about my way, creating a kingdom that would eventually crumble, God dipped into his bucket of grace and (laughs) forgave and lavished his grace upon me. And then lastly, it says, in his blood. Redemption is free to me, but expensive to him. You know, we talk about, we talk about adoption. We talk about going in and choosing a child, buying them out of, of a tragic life. And that is always really expensive, isn't it? So it is with you and I that who we are is that we're people who have been chosen, people who have been adopted. We are the beloved. We are forgiven. We are lavished upon in the blood of Jesus. That was the price tag for you to be these things. It was the price tag for you to be these things, the blood of Jesus. Lastly is the blessing of inheritance. Blessing of predestination, blessing of redemption, blessing of inheritance. And here's what... God says. He talks about the Holy Spirit here. When I was 16 years old, I went to a really, really, really goofy looking car dealership. And I looked at a 1994 Dodge Laser. (laughs) And I was like, that's the one. I'm going to get tons of checks with that. All right? Uh, Or a couple, which I was good with. And I said, I, I, want, I want that vehicle. And the guy said, that'll be $2,200, which was, at that point was $2,198 more than I had. Uh, and so I said, okay, well, let me figure out how to, how to get this. And he said, if you want that car, I'm going to need some, a down payment, earnest money, so that I know that you're going to come back and what? And buy it. Here's what God says. The blessing of inheritance is that the down payment on my adoption, forgiveness, redemption, choosing is the Holy Spirit. God puts on my life his Holy Spirit so that I will know that he will make good on his promise. This is why we talk about the fruit of of the Spirit. When God begins to change your life, it's proof that God's at work in your life, and it's proof that God's going to do what he said, which is that he's going to transform you into the image of Jesus until the day that he comes. And so, Paul 
writes to this church at Ephesus. And the title could be, This is Who You Are. This is who you are. Not, this is who you will be. Not, this is in a couple years where you've read your Bible a bunch of times and gone to community group and given money and served in kids and then, not now. This is who you are. You are a saint, Damascus Road Church. And I love saying that to you because I know that we have people who are coming from a lot of different places. And I know that we have this propensity to, to de-quantify, to, to take away, to diminish what God has done. God says you right now in Jesus are a saint. That's who you are. You are chosen. You are adopted. You are God's favorite. You are forgiveness, forgiven. You are lavished upon. You are sealed, guaranteed, bought. God's going to do. God's going to accomplish. God's going to make good on his promise. This is who you are. Paul's saying, I want you to know that. I want you to know that. I want you to know who you are because I know that there's going to be things that you are going to do that are going to make you think this isn't who you are. And I know there are going to be circumstances that are going to make you think this isn't who you are. And I know there are going to be people who are going to make you think this isn't who you are. And so I'm less concerned with you feeling like you are those things and I'm more concerned with you knowing. And I know that if you know who you are in Christ, I know that that will change your life. I know that that will change your 2014. I know that that will change your marriage. I know that that will change your work. I know that there is nothing in your life that will remain untouched if you know who you are in Jesus. And so that's why we're doing the book of Ephesians. (laughs) Because I want you to know, this is who you are. Nothing left to be earned, nothing left to be gained. It is done It is accomplished. God has saved you. You are a saint today. You are beloved today. You are chosen today. You are forgiven today. You are redeemed today. You are sealed today because of Jesus. And that's why we love him. That's why we want to introduce people to him. Stand with me if you would. Um, A couple ways that I'd like you to consider responding. One is to come up and take communion. Here's why we take communion. To remind ourselves of who we are to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. So we take the bread, his body broken. We drink of the, of the juice, his blood spilled out to remind ourselves this is who we are. We sing. And we sing because of knowing who we are. I know who I am. And in response to that, I enjoy singing Man of Sorrows. Right? I enjoy the truth of who I am because of the cross. We pray. If you're in here today and you're processing these things. Uh, Pastor Matt and I will be on this aisle right here. Come up and talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about that. And then lastly, we give. We've got boxes in the back. And, and why do we give? Not to earn, because I know who I am. Because I know who I am, and I know that my money doesn't define who I am. And so I give because God gave to me. Pray with me. God, we thank you for uh, the truth. Not, not what is true. This is the truth. This is who I am in Jesus. I'm a saint. I'm holy. I'm perfect. Before you, before a holy God, I, there's nothing to be done, nothing to be accomplished. 
God, before you, I'm, I'm your boy. You chose me. You longed to have me like we prayed to have Noah. You, before the foundations of the earth, you wanted Tim. You adopted me. I'm your favorite. You forgave me. There's nothing left to be forgiven. Things I've done, things I'm doing, things I will do, you addressed on the cross. You lavished your grace upon me. You emptied the cup of blessing onto my life. And you sealed me by your Holy Spirit. The earnest money has been put down. You have purchased me, and one day you're coming to get me. And God, we pray based on that that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But today, God, I pray you'd help us to know that we know that we know this is who I am in Jesus. You can't take anything from me. You can't do anything to me. This is who I am. I'm a child of God. Would you allow us to know that today, to see Jesus in the mirror for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.